Hey, Roshana. Good morning, Woodland Hills. There's a sort of spiritual energy in this place, and I'm liking it. I like it a lot. Especially over in this section, you guys are sensing. Wait, wait, wait. wait. All right. There's my amen section this morning. Feel free to be amen at me. I, I, I like it. I like it. We are studying the book of Luke. Well, my name is Greg Boyd. I'm the senior pastor here at Wilton Hills Church. And it really is a joy to be together with God's people, getting together on the weekend and just worshiping together and then uh, uh, getting into his word together. We are studying the book of Luke right now. We take breaks from it once in a while, but uh, we always come back to uh, the Bible. And so this season of our existence, we've been in the book of Luke. We're all the way up to chapter 23, starting a new chapter this morning. Dealing with the uh, trial that Jesus is in. And I want to entitle this message, Discomforted by the Silent Christ. For reasons that probably won't be clear for another 25 minutes. So just put that in your back pocket and we'll come back to it. Discomforted by the Silent Christ. This is a section where Jesus has just been on trial with the Jewish authorities. And now they're bringing him over to Pilate. And so we pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 23. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate and began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah. And since Pilate is a pagan and doesn't know what the term Messiah means, they say it means a king. That's not quite accurate, really, but they want to portray Jesus as this political figure to get Pilate to move against him, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus coyly replied. Then Pilate announced, probably assuming that Jesus is just a crackpot, not worth his time, he says uh, to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. And they, but they insisted he stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. I'm going to read another seven verses or so, but I want to just pause for a moment here. Uh, notice that the Jewish authorities here are uh, lying about Jesus. They're trumping up a charge, saying he's subverting the nation. He's undermining Roman authority by encouraging people not to pay taxes. Now, these same authorities know better. They, earlier in Luke, around chapter 20, probably about five years ago or so when we dealt with it, but in chapter 20, they had brought this question to Jesus specifically knowing that this was the most divisive political question of the time, should we pay taxes or not, um, they asked Jesus, what, what's your opinion? Wanting to thin out the crowd. Some people in ancient Judaism thought that they uh, should pay taxes to the Romans uh, just to stay out of trouble and whatnot. Others, however, said we shouldn't pay taxes because they're an oppressive, pagan, ungodly regime and, and uh, we don't want to be supporting them. So they asked Jesus this question, wanting to trip him up. Jesus did not encourage people to not pay taxes. What he did was this. He took this uh, coin that they had, and of course it had the image of Caesar on it, like all the coins did in those days. And he said, whose image is this? And they said, it's Caesar. And Jesus says, well, if it's got his image, it must belong to him, so give it back to him. Now, what was going on there was all the Jews understood that it was a violation. They interpreted it as a violation of the commandment against having graven image to have your own image on anything. And so Jesus is holding up this idolatrous piece of coin, and what he's really saying there is this. Are we Jews, because he's talking to all Jews at this time, are we really going to fight about how much of this idolatrous metal we're supposed to keep? Is that what you want to fight over? 
I didn't come here to settle that petty issue. The issue I've come to address is this. Are you giving God what bears his image? And that is our whole self. What he's saying to them is this. Uh, the Son of God didn't come into this world to settle all of our legal and political and social issues. He came to build the kingdom of God, which at his heart involves us surrendering our whole self over to God. But he was not about subverting the nation by causing people to uh, not pay their taxes. These authorities know that, but despite that, they trump up this charge. They, they define Jesus in political categories, in political terms, because they, they know that Pilate will only take action against Jesus if he sees him as a political threat. So they're trying to reduce Jesus down to the petty political squabbles of this world. And I mention that simply for this reason. People are still doing that all over the place, especially in the church. Trying to get Jesus to uh, recruit Jesus, use his name to further their own agendas, their own ideas, support their candidate, get on this cause or that cause. And, and the way it usually comes out is something like this. If you're a true Christian, well then, of course, you'll vote our way and go with our person and, and support our agenda. The other side disagrees. They say, no, if you're a true Christian, you'll go this way and vote this way and support this person or whatever. And they're all doing exactly what these religious authorities were doing, sucking Jesus down into the ugly, divisive politics of the culture. It's going on all over the place today as we head into another election season. Uh, if you turn on your radio, turn on the television, you'll see it all over the place. And I just want to say, be on your guard. Be on your guard whenever you hear that sort of stuff and just remind yourself that Jesus came not to settle all of those kind of particular squabbles. Those are relatively insignificant compared to what he came to do. He came to build the, the kingdom of God which involves people straining their whole life over to God. And remind yourself that the hope of the world does not land, does not reside on Caesar someday getting it right, coming, in, coming with the right tweaked version of Caesar, the right program, the right candidate, whatever. The hope of the world is in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and the people of God, Billy willing to live as he's called us to live. Amen. The church's job is just, just to do it. So... Uh, don't do what these authorities were trying to do here. But that's not what I'm going to preach on here this morning. I preached on that before. It's time to move on. So let's go to verse 6. That was just a little footnote. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean, because they just told him he's up in Galilee at first and doing all this stuff. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, because Herod was the governor of Galilee, he sent him over to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Herod was in Jerusalem because it was the Passover and Herod was a Jew, so they all came down to Jerusalem for that. So Pilate says, you know, I don't want to deal with this crackpot. Send him to Herod. He's under his authority. So he goes to Herod. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased. Oh, goody. Because for a long time, he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. Oh, Jesus, do one of those tricks. That water and the wine thing, it'd be so cool if you just you know, entertain us here. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. And so Herod here clearly is just out for a little bit of entertainment. And so the accusers are there. He asks Jesus some questions. He wants Jesus to do some, some tricks, but Jesus uh, does not comply with any of their requests. Then in verse 10, the chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. Dressing him like a, like a clown king, sends him back to Pilate. And that day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. 
And so in sending Jesus back to, uh, to Pilate with this fake robe on, uh, Pilate is really, or Herod is giving Her- Pilate uh, sort of his, his verdict on Jesus. He sees Jesus as a crackpot clown king, but he's not going to take the time uh, to deal with him. Since he's right now in Jerusalem, he's going to be your problem. There's two things I think we need to get out of this passage, two very, very important things. And before I dive into that, I would like to pray. So pray with me here. Father, for every person in this auditorium, every person who listen through podcasts, television, or any other means, I pray, Lord, that uh, our hearts would be genuinely open and surrendered to you to hear your word, to be confronted by your word, to be transformed by your word, maybe to be comforted by your word, but build your kingdom. It's always about your kingdom. We don't want to leave here or end this message the same as we were at the start. So through the power of your spirit, which is so present here, right here, right now, through the power of your spirit, anoint this word, make it your word, and change our lives. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. Two words that we need to get out of this passage. The first one has to do with this charge that was leveled against Jesus, that he stirred up the people. Here's the irony, that while the charge was false, that Jesus stirred up the people by trying to teach subversive politics, that was false. And yet there was a real truth to the charge that Jesus stirred up the people because Jesus did stir up people. He wouldn't have been in trouble right now if he wasn't a trouble stirrer-upper. Wherever he went, he was stirring up trouble. He didn't do it the way that they alleged that he did it, but he did stir up trouble. Everything about Jesus, his life, his style, his teachings, his actions, stirred up trouble because it challenged the status quo. It confronted the normal of the culture. It revolted against the accepted uh, values of the day. And so it rocked the boat. Jesus was always about rocking the boat. If Jesus had just been sort of a, a teacher who went about giving people seven steps to have a little bit better life, and here's how to have personal devotions, and, and, and here's some nice tips on, 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 on having a better marriage, and, and you know, it, 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 just sort of individualized teaching without any social implications, he wouldn't be in trouble. There's a lot of teachers who do that, and they didn't get in trouble, they didn't get crucified. But see, Jesus' teaching and his, his lifestyle, it bucked the system. It had massive social ramifications. Not along the lines of the political stuff that these authorities were charging, but when people start to live this way and see the world the way that he's saying that they should see the world, when they come under the reign of God, it changes everything. It has massive social ramifications. Jesus was always stirring up trouble. So, for example, when Jesus decided to defy the religious rules, the inhumane religious rules about not helping people on the Sabbath, not healing people on the Sabbath, not feeding people on the Sabbath, he was stirring things up. When Jesus decided to break the religious taboos about not touching unclean people or allowing unclean people to touch you, the people who had leprosy and other kinds of sores, Jesus did that. But there was rules against that, and so he was bucking this system. He was upsetting the system. When Jesus rebelled against the the religious taboos about fellowship, that the righteous and the unrighteous should not get together, and and Jesus instead decides to hang out with these poor abused women who are working the streets and the prostitutes and the tax collectors, he's massively bucking the system. He's rocking the boat. He's challenging the status quo. That kind of behavior will get you in trouble. When Jesus rebels against the sexism of his culture by the way he treats women, 
by the dignity that he gives them, even, even having the dignity of a conversation with a Samaritan woman who had already been through five husbands. When Jesus acts like that, it calls into question the legitimacy of the patriarchalism of the day. And it's rocking the boat. It's, it's stirring things up. When Jesus uh, decides to, to violate the class boundaries of his day, and he enters into solidarity with the poor and treats them like kings, he's stirring things up. When, when, when Jesus had the goal to call into question the religious authorities, calling them vipers and things like that, call, calling into question the, the, the legitimacy of their authority. He was stirring things up. That's the kind of thing that will get you crucified. When Jesus rebels against the racism of his day, by, by the way he holds up Samaritans, who everyone despised, he holds them up as heroes in his stories. He fellowships with them. And then he compliments the faith of a Roman centurion. He's stirring things up. He's revolting against the system. He is a walking, talking revolutionary, rocking the boat. And that's the kind of thing that will quickly get you in trouble. When Jesus decides not to, he refuses to buy into the patriotism of the day, the nationalism of the day. And he even tells his, his followers to love their Roman oppressors and to serve their enemies and to turn the other cheek and things of that sort. He is rocking the boat. He is stirring things up. He's causing trouble. And those who are the guardians of the status quo, who benefit from the status quo, who want to keep things exactly as they are, of course they are going to get ticked off. And this is why Jesus finds himself in this kind of trouble. If he'd just been giving nice little religious self-help skills around the country, no one would bother him. But see, you start living out the implications of the Jesus lifestyle and the Jesus teachings, and it, it upsets absolutely everything. You cannot love the way Jesus loved and teach the way Jesus taught and walk the way Jesus walked without getting into a lot of trouble, without stirring some things up. You can't come against social injustice and come against oppression and, and, and come against some of the inhumane uh, aspects of the religion of the time and not be upsetting the system, not calling into question the status quo. That gets you in trouble. Jesus is the model of the kingdom of God, and what it tells us is that everything about the kingdom is about stirring people up, getting stirred up, allowing God to upset the system, allowing God to call into question our normal, because God wants to bring a new normal. The kingdom of God is all about stirring things up. Now, I know there's a lot of, a large segment of American Christianity that disagrees with what I just said. In fact, a large segment of, of American Christianity says the opposite. Maybe if you sort of are, have buy into that segment of American Christianity, right now I'm stirring you up. Good. We got to get stirred up. No, it seems like there's a major segment of American Christianity that, 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 that rather says, uh, no, the status quo is good. The status, we baptize the status quo. We Christianize the status quo. Get comfortable with the status quo. The status quo is your blessing from God. And, and, and that's really convenient because it absolves you of any kind of responsibility to do anything with it. Oh, I just get to enjoy my nice little blessings. And, and, and the large segment of American Christianity acts as though and teaches as though Jesus came into the world primarily to make our life a little nicer, a little sweeter, a little more comfortable, a little more relaxed. Alongside all of our toys, we get to have Jesus too. What a wonderful deal. Yeah, you got me. And I'm here to tell you, you know, that, 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 is, that is not the real Jesus. That, that is an Americanized, consumerized, nationalized, minimized Jesus. That's not the real Jesus. The real Jesus of the gospel gets in our face. He gets in our face. I, I love the way one person put it. Uh, they said this, Jesus... Uh, Jesus came to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. Uh, that, that is so good. The real Jesus. 
The real Jesus, yes, he comforts the afflicted. And maybe you're here and you're afflicted. And, and I, you, you need to know that there is just God's mercy and God's grace and God's love and care and healing is all over you. He comes to comfort the afflicted. But he also comes to afflict the comfortable. He loves us too much to leave us comfortable. When he sees that we're getting too comfortable with the status quo, when we've lost our hunger, when we've lost our first love, when we've lost our drive, when we're starting to, when his bride, his beautiful bride for whom he died, when she starts just to sort of blend in too much with this world in which she's supposed to be a pilgrim and an alien, but now we're feeling pretty much at home. We start to buy into the values and we just sort of assume that, that the way things are, the way things are supposed to be, and, 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 and we stop growing and, 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 and pursuing God. He loves us too much to leave us in that. He comes to afflict the comfortable. The question we've got to ask is, have we gotten ourselves too comfortable? Jesus loves us too much to leave us in the, in the Egypt of our self-indulgence. So he wants to stir us up. The real Jesus loves us too much to leave us in the bondage of our consumerism. So he wants to stir us up. The real Jesus loves us too much to leave us in our apathy towards the poor and the homeless. So he wants to stir us up. The real Jesus loves us too much to leave us in the apathy towards the lost who live empty, meaningless, directionless, insignificant lives. So he wants to stir us up to care about them. The real Jesus loves us too much to leave us addicted to our comfort and convenience. So he wants to stir us up. He loves us too much to leave us in the slavery of our racist attitudes. So he wants to stir us up. The real Jesus came to set us free. Amen. He came to liberate a bride. He came to bring us out of Egypt. He came to set us so we can dance with God. He came to bring us a new normal. And the new normal confronts the normal of the world. There's no way to manifest the beauty of the kingdom of God and not confront the ugliness in our own life and the ugliness in the world that disagrees with the kingdom of God. They go hand in hand. Amen. And what that means, what that means is that we've always got to be praying the prayer, stir us up, God, stir us up, never let us get too comfortable. You know, we're so quick, and, and this is understandable. When, when we're afflicted, we pray, Lord, comfort us. That's understandable, but see, just as important but maybe a little harder is to pray when we're comfortable, Lord, afflict us. Lord, afflict us. I'm feeling too at home here. I'm supposed to be an alien. I'm supposed to be an oddball. I'm supposed to be swimming upstream in the culture. I'm supposed to be manifesting a different king. Oh, Lord, stir us up. Stir us up. It may be, it may be with, with our habits, or it may be the way we spend our time, or the way we spend our money, or maybe attitudes that we have towards people, or it may be our, our lack of energy that we put into ministering to our neighbors and ministering to the poor and, and in church. You know, it, it, it may be just ways that we reflect too much of America out there rather than the kingdom of God. And our prayers got to be God, stir us up, make us uncomfortable, disquiet us, turn us upside down. The kingdom is all about that. To be a follower of Jesus is the one who's never totally at home. There's always stuff that's getting stirred up, always new areas of growth, and always having our assumptions of what is normal being challenged so that the normal of God's kingdom can come into our life and begin to put on display to the world around us. God's new normal, the reign of God normal, the beauty of God's reign, and it contrasts so strongly with what's going on around in the culture. Can we pray that prayer, God, be stirring us up? We're getting too comfortable. And not only individually, but, but listen to this. Can we pray it as a congregation? If this is your church, if, this, if Woodland Hills is your, your body of people, I'm feeling led to call on us to pray the prayer, afflict us as a congregation. Have we gotten too comfortable as a congregation? Have we, have we just sort of started to coast? Uh, are, are we, you know, just sort of resting on past stuff that maybe has been done? 
Are there things that God wants to discomfort us in? Are we open to God doing something that maybe is outside of our normal? We, when, when the Holy Spirit shows up and really starts moving in people's lives and things start getting stirred, stirred up, sometimes it may make you feel uncomfortable. It may look a little bit odd. It may look a little bit different. Are we willing to do that, saying, God, we're not going to predefine how it's got to look? I don't know exactly what's going to go down, but I have a sense, and I'm just sharing a sense, that this year is going to be a discomforting year for some folks. And that's a good thing. Uh, that, I, I got a sense that God wants to kind of rock our world a little bit, and there's some stuff that he wants to do, and I don't have a preset idea about what that is. But I know it's going to stretch us. It's got to stretch us, and that's good news. It's got to make us a little uncomfortable. That's good news. Maybe it's got to afflict us a little bit. That's good news. And that frees us from our addiction to preference, or doing things with our own preference, and, and just kind of shopping around to get the, the tailor-made version of Christianity that we want. God wants to stretch us, push us, rock us, afflict us, turn us upside down to manifest more of his beauty and look even less like the world. Are you willing to pray the prayer? Lord, we're comfortable. Will you please discomfort us? Will you please discomfort us? Holy Spirit, give us that heart. So the first word we got to hear here is that Jesus stirs things up. It's what he's about. And our, our mindset has always got to be God, stir it, stir it, stir it, stir it. Some need to hear the word of comfort, receive it. The comfortable need to hear the word of affliction, receive it. The second thing I want us to get out of this beautiful passage is this. It has to do with the fact that Jesus, that Jesus was silent. Honey, can, can I have my water? Thank you. This is my lovely wife. Isn't she adorable? She's just like, It has to do with the fact that Jesus um, was silent during this trial. It's weird. You know, he's, he's before the Jewish Sanhedrin, and they're accusing him. And all he says, they say, you're the Messiah. He goes, you say it is so which is an odd response. And then he goes to Pilate and gets all the accusations all over again. And Pilate says, are you king of the Jews? And he says, you say it is so. Then he goes back over to Herod, and they're still barraging with all these accusations, trumping up these charges. We already see that they're lying about him. And then Herod barrages him with a bunch of questions and wants him to do a trick and display his power and, and then wants to know more about him. And Jesus, we're told the whole time, stays silent. I don't know if that went on for a half hour, hour, or however long, but imagine the scene where they're hurling accusations on him. A lot of them are just lies. Asking him all sorts of questions. He has the answers. He could respond, but he just stays silent. And then he goes back to Peter, to, to Pilate a second time and says absolutely nothing. Matthew talks about this in his gospel. It says this. When... Uh, when he went back to Pilate, he was accused by the chief priests and the elders once again, but he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? He's saying, dude, you are in big trouble here. Say something. Don't you have a word in your self-defense? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now, it would have amazed the governor because this is unheard of. We've got a lot of records, a, a number of accounts in the Greco-Roman world, in the ancient world, going back to Socrates' trial, where religious uh, folks or, or teachers or philosophers were brought to trial for various reasons. And invariably, they used their platform in the courtroom to showcase their wisdom and vindicate themselves. So Pilate would be expecting this from Jesus, and yet Jesus says absolutely nothing. And the question is, why? Why? Now, maybe you would say, well, it's because it was part of the divine plan that he would be crucified. 
And so silence was a way of getting him crucified. So he did it as part of a divine plan. And you'd be absolutely right. This was part of a divine plan for Jesus to be crucified. And the silence was part of that plan. In fact, we read in the book of Isaiah, 800 years before Jesus came, it was prophesied that he'd be silent. Isaiah says he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Jesus fulfilled that prophecy, as well as the prophecies about, about his death, dying and being buried with, in the tomb of a wealthy person and things of that sort. So yes, it was part of a divine plan. But it was even more than that. Because the silence of Jesus in the face of his accusers wasn't simply something Jesus did for us, though it was that, but it was also something that Jesus wants to do through us. It was an example that we are called to follow. Follow me on this. Here's what it says in 1 Peter. Peter says, and we looked at this verse a little bit last week, it is commendable if you bear under the pain of unjust suffering, you, you, you bear up, because you are conscious of God. That phrase, conscious of God, just means you remain conscious of God. You know who God is. You, you know what the purpose of your life is, what's going on in this world. And doing that, it empowers you, knowing that, remaining conscious of God empowers you to bear unjust suffering. He says it again. If you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. Why? Because to this you were called. This is what we're called to. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And here's one of the ways that we follow in his steps. He goes on two verses later and says, When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Jesus did not respond to his accusers. The he didn't retaliate with words, didn't vindicate himself with words because he, was, he trusted his heavenly father would vindicate him in the end. We always use our words to vindicate ourselves now. But, but Jesus instead said, I know that, that, that when, when, when the end comes, I will be vindicated. And he trusted that and therefore didn't have the need to defend himself publicly when he was on trial. And that is an example that we're supposed to imitate. It means this, that there will be times as a kingdom person when there are perhaps rumors spread about you or accusations leveled against you. And you have an impulse where you want to put out the fire of those rumors or you want to vindicate yourself in response to that accusation. Or an insult is thrown at you and there's this impulse that we have that wants to retaliate. Oh yeah, well you're a, you know, and there's that impulse that you just want, or you're in the middle of an argument and, and, and now looking good becomes more important than loving the person that you're, that you're arguing with. Uh, or, or, or being honest with the points that they're making. You're trying to save face. And, and if we're following this example, it means that there will be times in those kind of situations where God will have us suppress that impulse, die to that impulse, and remain silent. And remain silent. Paul says this in Romans 12. He says, never retaliate. Never return evil with evil. Um, but rather, you love your enemies. And leave all vengeance to God. God will just make every wrong right in the end. You trust that, and trusting that means you don't have to try to make every wrong right now. And we apply that often around here to physical violence, and it, it applies. That we're never to resort to physical violence. We're to return evil with good. But it also replies to verbal violence. We, got, we are violent with our words. And we receive violent words, accusations, rumors, things that just violate our worth, and our impulse is to retaliate. It's a way of protecting our worth. And what this passage is telling us 
is that there is at least times where we're not to do that, but we are rather to remain silent. And it can be very, very hard. A number of years ago, uh, mid-90s, I had, went through an episode where there were some people in high places, some very influential people, who just decided that I had to go. Uh, that they didn't like my theology. And so there was spread far and wide all sorts of writings and stuff about me. And uh, uh, many of the things that were said were false. They would take things that I wrote or things that I said and put them out of context and give them a real negative spin and, 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 and trying to paint me as a heretic and put words into my mouth and, and, and things of that sort. Uh, they were uh, calling on Christians to boycott any bookstore that would sell my books and, and uh, write letters to the publishers that published my books and they're threatening lawsuits and they're two years trying to get me fired at Bethel College and all sorts of other pleasant things were going on during this time. And at first, my impulse was to vindicate myself. And there's a legitimate place for that. If, I, if I'm asked, what's your opinion about this? I heard that you believe this. Is that true? Well, then I, I appreciate the opportunity to clarify myself. But what I got involved in early on in this debate went beyond that. I felt this need to, every time there was a public accusation, I had to go over there and clarify this. And then I had to run over here and clarify that. Oh, no, no, that, I didn't say that. You've got to read in the context. And I'm running around putting out fires all over the place. And I discovered that there was something in my inner spirit that began to get sour. There's an anger, especially when you correct a perception and then they keep on repeating it anyways. You start to get this anger starts to seethe in there and that's not a godly thing. And there came a point where God really had to confront me. God really had to confront me and, and, and the basic confrontation was this, Greg, what's your job description as a kingdom person? Is it to protect your PR department? We all got a PR department, don't we? A public relations department. We're always aware of what people think. We, we want to monitor what people think about us and as much as possible influence what people think about us so that at least it's accurate and maybe even better than accurate. You know, we want to have a good image. And God was saying, what, what, what's driving you, Greg? Your, your, kingdom, your kingdom call is to love your enemies, bless those who persecute you, if you can call this persecution. You know, pray for those who are despitefully using you. Uh, serve them if that comes up. Turn the other cheek. I wasn't doing a whole lot of that. Wasn't doing a whole lot of that. I, all my energy was going into my PR department. And so the Lord said, Greg, right, here's the thing. Are you going to trust me with your PR department? Uh, I, I will make all wrongs right. I will judge justly. Your job is not to be doing that. Not that you can't clarify things if you're asked. No, that's fine. But running around trying to put out every fire to preserve your self-image, let it go. Let it go. Dot, fire your PR department. Hire me as your PR department. And your job is just to love those folks. When was the last time you prayed for one of those people that were, or, or trying to get people to boycott the bookstore, huh? And, and, and so he gave me that assignment. Every time I heard about something being said, I had to enter into prayer uh, for, for that person. And what I did, among other things, is it just freed me from the bondage of what was going on in my inner spirit, that souring of the spirit. We are called to this, folks. All of us have a PR department. Partly generated by the fact that it's a form of idolatry because we get life from what people think about us. So we want to control it, look good, vindicate ourselves. You know, you hear, you hear the rumor and you want to go put out that fire. You get the accusation, you want to vindicate yourself. You get the insult, you want to retaliate. You're in the argument, you want to look good. And to follow this teaching here is, it means this. It means God is saying, I want to be all of your life and I want to be your PR department, will you fire your PR department? Crucify your PR department. Make it so that the, only one that the only opinion that matters is God's. And see, if we really live in that, God's the only opinion that matters, we can let go of all this other stuff. And now we're empowered to follow the example of Jesus. 
where we don't always need to use words to vindicate ourselves or to clarify things. Sometimes he just calls us to be silent. Now that doesn't mean, it does not mean that there's never a place to speak out. It doesn't mean that, that there's never a time even to stand up for your rights. If you, for example, are a woman in an abusive relationship, it's not loving to you or the person who's, who's abusing you to remain silent. It's certainly not God's will for you to remain silent. Sometimes you've got to speak out. Or if you're witnessing somebody else being treated unjustly and there's something you can do about it, that's not the time to remain silent. Jesus spoke out on things like that. And there's a multitude of murky issues that I'm not going to pretend isn't there. A lot of murky issues in the complex culture of our day where, you know, courts of law things and insurance companies where, you know, should I speak out, defend my rights, should I not? And, and there you just got to ask God to give you wisdom and to guide you. There's no rule that fits all of that. But here's the thing. Here's the thing, and it's so important. If we are walking in the kingdom, we will ask a question that's different than what other people ask. The question we need to live in is, what is the loving thing to do? What is God's will for me to do in this situation? In response to the rumor, the accusation, uh, the, 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 the charge being made against you, the argument that you're in, what, we live in the question, God, what is your will? We remain conscious of God, as Peter said, conscious of God. And that's got to ch- change the way that we respond to things. Whether we speak or whether we or don't speak, the motivation can't be, what's my PR department say? No, no, the motivation has got to be what is the loving thing to do here? And I suspect strongly that if we live in that question, God, what is your will? What is the loving thing to do in responding to the gossip over there or the rumor that's being spread or the accusation or the insult I just got driving out of the church parking lot or, 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 or whatever, I suspect that more often than not, our response will be to shut up. Shut up. Let it go. If you listen to it, let it go. Let it go. It's not worth weighing in on. And see, and so instead you just bless the person. Now, you've you got to crucify your PR department to just remain silent and bless the person uh, and just pray for the person, maybe serve them. The person who's gossiping about you all the time in the, in the, in, in the office, what would happen if you just shut up and didn't try to retaliate, but just bought them a birthday present or, heck, just give them a chocolate bar for the fun of it. See, never return evil with evil. Return evil with good. And see, in doing that, in doing that, You're putting on display another dimension of the beautiful kingdom. You're putting on display this, that you are an ambassador of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and your home is is the kingdom of God. And therefore, you are above the pettiness of the squabbling, violent words that are said throughout the world. Most of the stuff is petty, dumb, stupid stuff. When we bite the bait and we give into it, we're just saying, hey, we're as shallow as everybody else. We're out to protect our PR department. That's what everyone's doing. But when you can be above it, because you're getting all your life from God, his opinion is the only one that really counts. He's already told you what he thinks about you on Calvary. You don't need, you know, the world can hate you and you're still going to be okay because you know that your creator uh, loves you and all wrongs will be made right in the end. So trusting God, trusting God, you can remain silent. You don't always need to be putting out fires. Let it go, let it burn. In fact, do the opposite of your impulse. Rather than putting out fires, give the chocolate bar. Take them out to eat. Say hi to them in the office, however it might look. Live in the question, what's the loving thing to do? What would God's will have you to do? I want to do this exercise here. Could you close your eyes for a moment? And Holy Spirit, help us to be honest with ourselves right now and to really get deep here. Uh, can you remember a time, and it may be on the way to church here or maybe it was 10 years ago, 
But remember an episode where there was a rumor said about you or there was an accusation made against you or an insult hurled at you or you were in a heated argument that you desperately wanted to win. And just recall that. It shouldn't be too hard for most of us. Holy Spirit, help us to remember. And then as you're remembering that, just investigate it a little bit like a detective. How did that impact you? What were the feelings on the inside? And notice if it activated your PR department. You needed to defend your honor. You needed to vindicate yourself. You needed to correct the rumor. What was your motivation there? And just enter into that. And the purpose of remembering this is not to condemn ourselves or to have regret or remorse. Maybe you totally blew it. That's fine. It's in the past. It doesn't matter. But what's important is that we learn from it. The only purpose for even bringing up the past is to learn. And so, Lord, teach us what we need to learn by remembering these episodes. And now, ask the Holy Spirit to give you a picture of what you would have done had you been living in the question, what is the loving thing to do? What is God's will to do? How, how could you have responded maybe where you didn't use words? If you didn't have any need to vindicate yourself, if all your worth came from Christ, if you're living in love, how would you have responded differently? And just try to see yourself doing that. The calmness that's there. They're maybe hotter than a hornet, but you're not. No, you just bless them. Maybe everyone who's looking at this is so puzzled, like why are you just remaining quiet, walking away? That's good. They did it with Jesus. And then would you hear as the Holy Spirit's moving in our hearts, and he, this is how he brings about transformation. Just pray this prayer, Lord, be all of my life, my worth, my significance, my identity. Be all of my life, my worth, my significance, and my identity. Lord, give me the kind of heart where your opinion is, is the one that defines me, nothing else. And you define me on Calvary. You love me like that. And so, Lord, pray this prayer. Free me from my addiction to the PR department so I can let it go. Just, and then just kind of feel it release. It doesn't matter what they think. It just doesn't matter. All wrongs will be made right before too long. Okay. You'll be vindicated before too long. Right now, your one job is to be obedient. Just be obedient. Let it go. Let it go. And feel the peace that happens. So much of our anger and frustration and bitterness is wrapped up in our PR department. Let it go. Just die to it. It feels so good to get rid of that beast. Let God be your PR department. Mm. Surrender to God. Surrender to his love so that everything we do, 1 Corinthians 16, 14, everything we do is motivated by love, Christ-like love. Our responses to rumors, to gossip, to accusations, to arguments is love. Sit in his presence for a moment here. Let God do whatever work he needs to do in your life.
teams to come forward and if you're here this morning and have any need whatsoever any need that you would like to have prayed for i encourage you to come forward and enter into prayer with these folks or you're free to just pray at the altar on your own if if you want but father as we leave this place we pray that you'd stir us up give us a heart that wants to be discomforted that puts obedience to you and faithfulness to you above our own comfort and therefore is always open to you turning us upside down calling into question our normal and then, Lord, make us a people who our very identity is rooted in nothing other than your love for us. So to be a people who can follow the beautiful example of Jesus and remain silent. Give us the wisdom of silence, the beauty of silence, the beauty of being free from the need to justify ourselves with our words, to put out fire with our words, or to retaliate with our words. Give us your words when we speak your silence when we're quiet, to manifest the beauty of your kingdom, 
to rule around us in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, God bless you guys. Love you. Go out and build the kingdom. Thank you.